1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performance Podcast. I'm Brian Levitson. excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help me out. So, I recently launched a cohort for executives. So, the cohort and the idea of the cohort is that I am coaching 10 executives it's one-on-one coaching it can be done over zoom so there's people all over the country that i coach or in person if you're in the washington dc area and i coach these 10 executives over six months so i coach them they get 12 sessions and at the end of the that coaching they come together for a retreat. So we're having our first retreat in June and I'm so excited to see how these people will come together and learn from each other. So I switch from wearing a coaching hat to a facilitator hat and they really get to learn from each other and teach each other what... They've come to understand in their mindset and their philosophies. So it's going to be super special to see them come together. And the cohort is going great. The 10 executives that I'm coaching are awesome. They range from the director level to the CEO level from age 30 to 60. And they're all super curious, driven, open-minded people who are just looking to take their game to another level. So these are people that have already had some success in their career, and they're looking to become even more successful. And they're either looking at their personal life, their professional life. They're just looking to see how they can be better versions of themselves. So I'm launching a second cohort in late June, early July, and I'm looking for members. I'm looking for people that want to get coached one-on-one and would love to also be at a retreat in December with other like-minded folks so if that's you if that's something you're interested in or if you know somebody who'd be a good fit for the program please reach out to me my email is Brian at or you can find me on Twitter at Brian Levinson and now to the fun part coach Megan Jebia is the head coach of the women's basketball team at American University I've been working with her team for a couple of years now and they've had amazing success While Coach has been there, they've gone to the NCAA tournament twice, and that's really a a massive feat for the program. And Megan has helped lead the team to two conference championships, and every year since I've really been involved with the team, they've been competitive, and they really have created a culture that is selfless, that is specific in what they're trying to do, that's system-oriented. And Coach is gotten amazing young women to be part of this program. They're talented, they're smart, they're gritty. It's really a great group and I'm just really fortunate to be a small cog in what they're creating and what they've done already at American University. So I love what Coach Meg has done and I'm so excited to see what she's going to continue to do. This conversation gets into her journey. It gets into her story. It will give you some insight into how she has come to be and some watershed moments that have really shaped her life and some people that have really influenced her. So Coach is really vulnerable in this conversation. I'm so grateful that she was and that she is because that's part of who she is. And so without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Coach Megan Jebia. Megan, excited to have you on the podcast we were just talking before we fired up the mics that neither of us can hear very well. So hopefully we'll be able to hear each other well enough in our headphones that we'll be able to have a conversation today. I'm deaf in my left ear, which I just told you in your surprise. <laughs> and you said that you have hard of hearing and your dad has also trouble hearing. So hopefully we'll be able to hear enough and that the listeners will be able to pick up on some of the that we have <laughs> uh, here. But that leads to actually my first question, which is I want to know about your family, your upbringing, what life was like for you as a kid. I know you, you ended up playing college ball, but tell me about what life was like in the Jebbia. Did I pronounce it right? Yeah,
0: Jebia. You got it.
1: The Jebbia household uh, growing up.
0: Well, I, I guess I could start with um, just like figuring out that basketball was a sport that I really loved. Um, and I think that was probably at some point in, late elementary school early middle school where it just is a sport that kind of came easy to me um and it's funny enough neither of my parents are athletic at all i'm not really sure where i got this athletic gene from um but it was one of those things where you know i kept saying to my parents like where do i get this this from and my mom and dad are like probably your grandfather i guess i had a grandfather that played um professional baseball but um, I didn't. I never met him because he died before I was born, or the year that I was born. So I think that's where the gene comes from. Um, but I was a, a four sport athlete. Like I played every season something different. Um, and I think it was the type of person that got a little sick of the same sport over and over and over again. And you, you watch players grow up now, that's all they do year round. And I just can't imagine myself not playing soccer not playing tennis or not playing softball or whatever it was that I decided to do, um, growing up. And I think that made me a little bit better of an athlete because you had to do more than just shoot the basketball or defend. Um, it was throwing, it was, it was hitting, it was all those things. It was timing. Um, so for me, I was really. I was. I'm the middle child, so I'm the only girl in the family. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Um, and my older brother is the ultimate nerd, <laughs> really smart, into the sciences. Um, and him and I really didn't have a lot in common. I mean, we got along fine, but we just didn't have anything in common. And my younger brother, Ryan, um, was somewhat of an athlete as well. Um, and he he was starting to become a pretty good basketball player. He's six five, not real quick, but you know, good skill set. And we would play like in the in the in the front yard at the hoop we had outside in front of our house. Um, and I used to beat him all the time. And then he started to grow. Um, and when he became a little taller than me, is when I decided that it was time to stop playing uh, against him. So you know, so him and I had a lot in common growing up because of the sport thing that kind of tied us together. He's a huge Duke fan, I'm not. um, But I do like Duke, but not as much as he does. Uh, But yeah, so that was kind of kind of cool growing up. Um, And then through high school, I I, I had a really good high school coach, um, who had a had a plan, he had strategy, he kind of taught me fundamentals. And we won a state championship my junior year of high school. That's probably my biggest highlight moment for me as a player, because um, we weren't able to get to the tournament in college. So,
1: what was it like to win a championship your junior year?
0: I mean, I remember saying to the to my coach afterwards, "You didn't think we could do it, did you?" And he said, "No," and oh. it was just we were the underdog the entire time. But at the and I love being the underdog. That's something that I feel like I thrive on. Um, and I knew we had the talent. We just weren't as as um, We've never been there. I mean, that group had never gotten to the the state championship or even, I think, the state tournament at that point. Um, but we had a, a really close knit group, a group that got along, that understood each other's roles and everything. And we had to hit a couple like really crazy shots throughout the course of the game, which usually happens in those situations. Um, but yeah, I just it was I was elated, I was happy, and and I remember thinking back to that time and thinking. You know, because it's a state tournament, you know, a lot of people because basketball is such a small world that I wanted to reach out to other people that had won to to let them know, you know, to say congratulations and understand what they're going through as far as the elation and the excitement and to kind of keep yourself grounded. But at the same time, try to enjoy it as much as possible.
1: When you look back and you it sounds like your older brother's not into sports, you get into it. What were mom and dad's reaction when you started to get into sports?
0: They, well, they, they're they super involved. I mean, even today, they come to all my home games here at AU, um, and they loved it. And actually, my older brother, as much as he didn't like sport, he was the one, <laughs> I'll never forget this, but in the state championship game, he was yelling at the end of the game as we were up, like, tap the keg, like, let's go. Like He was the one that was really excited, and he could care less about basketball. So that was a fun moment for me to remember, um, that he did care, and that even though he had no idea what was going on out there. Um he was supportive.
1: And you mentioned playing multiple sports. I'm curious, today you mentioned kids are less likely to play multiple sports and to specialize. Do you look for athletes that do play multiple sports or is that something that's not even really in existence too much?
0: I think I probably should a little bit more, but I'm more attracted to their skill um and what they bring to what we do in our system so but when i talk to a player on the phone and i hear that they do play other sports i'm not turned off by it and i think some coaches maybe because it's like they want to drill it into their head like 24 7 365 you know you're you're playing basketball and i just think you need a break i needed a break so i i could understand players that need breaks It's an
1: interesting dynamic because a lot of the best basketball players in the NBA played multiple sports. LeBron James played football in high school. Dirk Nowitzki was a tennis player. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see how it impacts their footwork and how it can help their footwork. Playing a sport like tennis, for example. And tennis is also different in that you have to learn how to be on an island.
0: And a precision. I mean, it's precision to a T, yes.
1: Technique, drill. Monotony, mm-hmm. hit the wall, hit mm-hmm. the wall, hit. You know, forehand tennis, you know, ball machine, all that. Mm-hmm. When you played those other sports, what did you like about those other sports? You said I needed a break. What did you get from those other sports that might have assisted you in your basketball career?
0: You know, I'm not, I've never really thought about that's a really good question. I think um, different players, different people surround. So not all the people that played basketball played played softball. And my mom actually said can you stop playing softball? It's so boring. <laughs> so, so I left softball and went to tennis so I could be in every play. <laughs> so I think it's the mental part of it though, especially the tennis piece. I played singles and doubles. So you kind of had a teammate, but then it's all on your shoulders. Um, but I like that aspect of having to move quickly, um, you know, and get from one spot to the next. Uh, but I think... Soccer was one of those sports I probably enjoyed that coach the most. And yet it was definitely, I knew I was never going to play in college. um, But I just like his mental approach to the game. He was very calm. I remember that. Um, Very consistent as a person. And seemed to always point out the positives and always could tell you the negative without it feeling like you're getting crushed by him. Um, And probably soccer is the thing I played the, the longest um and just really i don't know what it was about soccer it was maybe it was that you didn't have to be in every play i was a striker so i was a forward so i didn't have to play defense as much not a great defender but i don't know if that's part of it
1: well it's interesting because you have let's just put basketball in the middle and then you've got, you're talking about tennis, and you're talking about soccer. I know you mentioned softball as well, but let's just use tennis and soccer. Mm-hmm. Tennis, like you said, you're involved in every play. Mentally, it's it's grueling, mm-hmm. and you have to constantly learn how to recover from a mistake. You unforced error, you hit it in the net, you hit mm-hmm. it out of bounds, okay, let's get the next one. You don't have time to wallow in your sorrows. There's no bench in tennis other than the breaks in between, uh, in between games and, and sets sometimes. And then you have soccer, like you're saying, where you might have a lot of activity and then they might be up there doing their thing uh, at the position you played. But it's this team dynamic where one player can't dribble the ball through the entire team. A couple of right. great players can make that happen every once in a while, but mm-hmm. it's really about a team and moving the ball and playing together in this beautiful game. And then basketball might be somewhere in the middle because there's only five people. You're constantly getting action that you don't really get to take plays off. You have to defend. Um, so you got the tennis aspect, but you can't go at it alone, mm-hmm. but it's not as much as soccer where there's 11 people right. and there's, you know, you're playing in 100 yards or so, or whatever it might be. So it's a fascinating. It's fascinating. You got the intensity of tennis with the space of soccer and basketball is kind of the convergence of both of those.
0: Yeah, I would say with soccer, you do have time to think when you're not involved, and you can kind of figure out what you need to do or, or think about how you're gonna gonna fake the next the next defender that comes across your path. So yeah, and then like you said with tennis. <sighs> I don't know. It was probably the toughest sport for me because I I didn't grow up playing it a ton. I did take tennis lessons as a child. I remember my mom taking me down for tennis lessons. But um, I always thought, you know, now looking back um, and what I've done as a 46 year old, I wish my parents would have made me play golf because I really feel like that's a sport I would have been really good at had I started at a young age. And it's just, it's the mental piece. It's It's not real fast. I don't have to play defense, (laughs) Um, but it's ball striking. It's kind of like shooting, you know, it's the same, same form every single time and it's touch. And I, golf is probably the sport that I I love the most right now, just because it relaxes me and it takes my mind off basketball completely. I just wish I would have started at a younger age.
1: You and me both. I refused (laughs) to play golf when I was a kid and my, my parents laugh because I work with so many golfers now and I play a decent amount. Uh, I play as well as I possibly can, but that's a story for another day. (laughs) I want to be a basketball player and I do not have your height (laughs) and I would imagine I don't have your shooting stroke, which we're going to get to in a minute. But, um, you know, I love basketball and to your point, well, my parents did try to get me to play golf and I said, no. I was stupid. I'm,
0: I'm jealous. Uh, my my parents didn't play golf, so it wasn't like that. It didn't even cross their mind. And it's an expensive sport. I mean, you have to belong to a club and all that stuff. So
1: I was just dumb. Like <laughs> I was a dumb sixteen year old, and I can have a lot of people that can vouch for me on that front. Fortunately, <laughs> hopefully, I'm I'm I've grown out of some of my dumbiness. Um. So back to you. So from a value standpoint, what did mom and dad pass down to you and and your brothers as well?
0: You know, my my. I should say, I was gonna say my parents, my mother, Uh, I think of her most importantly, because my dad, he traveled a ton for his job. So he wasn't around a lot. So my mom had three kids, you know, toting people back and forth to practice to games and everything. And obviously, we had a lot of friends. So they helped us out. But my dad was the quiet, calm one in the stands, my mom would always tell me the real deal. She would look at me in the eye and say, you sucked today. And it's not like she knew that much about the game, but whatever she saw, she would let she would tell me. wasn't she never sugarcoated anything for me? Why? I, I just that's how she is. She's direct, um, and I think that's part of what I get I get from her in coaching. Is usually I'm not terribly mean, but I'm pretty direct with people, um, and so. I just think she wanted me to be as, as good as I could be. And I, what I do love about both of them, though, is that they, they think that I'm the greatest coach ever. And I absolutely don't think that, that I have a lot to learn. But they continue to build me up. My mom always says great things about when she comes and watches our team and stuff like that. But I appreciate that. I appreciate the directness and the honesty because I, I I guess I wouldn't have become the player I was without her. I wouldn't have gotten a scholarship. I wouldn't have moved on and and did what I did as a player. But – um. Yeah. That's the thing I take the most from them is just, this is who you are. This is what what I see. And You know, she'd always like, even if I'd fall or injuries and things like that, you're fine. Just get up. You're fine. And I feel like playing those other sports, especially tennis, like you talked about earlier, next play was something that just popped in my mind right away was if I made a mistake, I'll get the next one. I I don't know why I was positive like that, but I'm just positive by nature that way. And that's sometimes hard as a coach because I feel like the better coaches are the negative ones, the ones that never think it's going to work out.
1: Tell me more about that.
0: About the positive part?
1: Yeah, you just said something that – I had a different question in mind, but I'm more curious about – you said the better coaches, I feel like, are the negative ones. Tell me more about that. Yeah,
0: I, I think – when I think of that, I think of Coach Georges, who was my mentor at Marist, and he never thinks – he never thought things would work his out his, the way he wanted them to work out. So – you know, it was always we're not gonna win this game even though he might be a 30 point favorite. Like he was always trying to figure out different ways and he never was satisfied with where the team was. Um, and I've, I've learned to do that, but I'm always thinking things will turn out well for us. And so I, I don't know why he's that way or if there's a reason that's how he was brought up, that's how, what he thinks of himself, but I, I'm not sure.
1: So I have this framework that is really interesting I worked for a high school basketball team once and they had t-shirts. They went to the state finals. They were underdogs. It was an amazing story that they got that far. Mm -hmm. And the next year I was working with them actually as an intern. This was a long time ago. And they had shirts made that said, satisfaction is the enemy of success. Mm -hmm. And I saw that. At the time I'm in grad school and just like, you know, engrossed in reading books and learning about the psychology of sport And I'm looking at that quote and I'm just like, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Thought about it. And I, I, I since have still thought about it some more. And here's what I came to. I disagree with it. Mm -hmm. I think satisfaction is actually what breeds success. Mm. The more that we feel a sense of satisfaction in something, the more desire we have to continue to move toward it complacency is the enemy of success Mm -hmm. the moment we become fat or complacent or you know I'm I'm just good with where I'm at Mm -hmm. you said something like no I still got a lot to learn as a coach earlier that's a lack of complacency Mm -hmm. and so I think complacency is the enemy of success but I actually think satisfaction is the enemy of failure Uh and I think complacency actually drives failure and satisfaction actually drives success Mm -hmm. and so I don't know the coach that you're referencing at Marist who you coached with and I'm sure he's a great coach, Mm -hmm. but I would push back on this notion. I think being somewhat neurotic is part of a coach's deal and never thinking, never becoming complacent and Nick Saban is a master at this, right? They're always focused on the process of getting better. But if you don't have time to feel a sense of satisfaction in the success I think you're doing it wrong. I think you need to experience some of that joy. And so I'm not a fan of saying you have to be positive all the time or negative all the time. I am a fan of saying, all right, what's useful for you? And for me, at least, when I take a step back and say like, yeah, you know what? That was a satisfying workout. That was a satisfying practice. Mm -hmm. That was a satisfying podcast. Mm -hmm. That fuels my desire to continue to do it. But the moment I become complacent in any of that, then I'm moving towards failure. Mm-hmm. So I'll get off my soapbox. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this framework and, and how, you, how you hear it.
0: Um, I really like what you had to say. I think when you mention the word satisfaction and how you describe it, I think of the moments that we've won championships, whether it be at Marist or, or here at American. And I really think that that's exactly how I felt in the moment. Was not pure elation or joy or like we did it. It was more of, oh, uh, okay, I, I knew we could do this. I'm satisfied with what we did. Even this year, if I look back and I say, yeah, we didn't win the, the championship, but I was pretty satisfied with what this group did because you lose so many seniors the year before. And there's you could see that what was happening throughout the season. We had injuries. We had to change lineups and things like that. And you have to give a little in those situations and understand where you're at. And to me, Um, sometimes it's not always winning that, that, that brings that satisfaction or the, I'm sorry, the championship that brings that satisfaction, but it could be a 500 season and you can be satisfied with the players that are on your team.
1: Such a good point. I worked with a basketball team once where they won it all. And the coach was just, it was like he exhaled Mm -hmm. because he had this super talented team and you know, they were expected to win and they had the talent to win but it wasn't the culture. It wasn't the environment. It wasn't that satisfying because, um, you know, it was kind of like an exhale rather than like a smile. (laughs) And I think those are very different. And so just cause you get to the top of the mountain doesn't mean it's going to be a smile. It might be an exhale. And I think if I were to go to a practice in December, and watch you work, you might get tremendous satisfaction. I know this. You would get tremendous satisfaction in watching your team execute the way that you envision them Mm -hmm. running the system and executing a certain way. It's important to recognize that satisfaction because that should be as much a part of the success as the trophy. It's, It's how do we unlock that sense of satisfaction, which by the way, the science of happiness suggests that satisfaction is one of the key tenets. So if all humans strive to be happy, then we should strive for satisfaction and thinking about satisfaction not just about the top of the mountain mm-hmm. but the journey and the the processes along the way. So it's fascinating. I want to go back to something else you said which was about this notion of your mom believing in you mm-hmm. and being critical of you. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I thought, man, that's a powerful thing which is My mom and dad both believe I'm the greatest coach in the world. They Mm -hmm. believe in me and they're going to tell it to me straight. Mm -hmm. As you think about your coaching style, how much of your style is in reference to that notion of I believe in you and because I believe in you, I'm also going to shoot it straight.
0: Yeah. It's a combination of my parents. I mean, obviously that's what most of us are is a combination between your mom and your dad, but there's, there's no question, you know, and I don't think I ever really thought about it until you're explaining it the way that you are. Cause I always thought it was Brian, you know, or the other coaches that I worked for. I, you know, I grab a little bit from each of them and try to try to add it to what I do. Um, but looking back, that is who I am. I mean, it is, I'm positive yet. I'm, I'm consistent. I think for the most part of my behavior. I'm calm, but I'm direct. I don't think you have to yell and scream and and swear at people to get them to do what you want them to do. And I kind of try to enjoy the, the process, I really do. I know that next year is gonna be a completely different year than this year, we're trying to change things based on players, but I know that, that I have to reach some level of satisfaction through that time. And I like that I have a group of coaches next to me that understand me, um, and they'll tug me on the sleeve or whatever if they think I'm getting a little too crazy from time to time. They understand where I'm coming from, but they also understand that these are 18 to 21 year olds or 22 year olds, and they know never change. They're always that age. And I talk about this all the time, we get older, and they they stay the same. So you're always dealing with a certain type of thought process, and and mind frame that they come from. And it's, it doesn't vary that much. I think it depends on their upbringing and their families and how they were taught. And were they? um, How were they talked to? Were they babied? Were they, you know, I have a kid coming in next year that her AAU coach just was tough. She can be coached hard. I know that about her. And the more you communicate and the more you get to understand your team, the better off I think you'll be as a coach because you you do need to coach them different. I don't believe in coaching everybody the same way, but you have to be fair.
1: What do you know now? I think you mentioned 46 years old. <laughs> what do you know now at 46 about coaching 18 to 22-year-olds that you didn't know when you were 26 or
0: 36? I would say – I was an assistant then, so I kind of look at it differently. And what I do know is when you have the head coaching title, they treat you differently. The players. The players treat you differently. And I've been, I have been—I was an assistant for 20 years or 20, 19 years, and I felt like they embraced me more. They got to know me better. They cared to talk to me and have side conversations more often. As a head coach, you have to go and seek them out and have conversations with them.
1: Why do you and think that is? I,
0: I wish I knew, Brian. I, I really wish I knew because I'm I'm now, my staff has told me you need to have more, you need to get to know them more. So I'm trying like after every workout, pull a kid or two aside and talk to them or beforehand. Just ask them how their day went. How How was Easter?
1: I'll give you a thought and a theory having dealt with, a, worked with a lot of athletes at the college level. I think most of them don't want to bother you. They mm. don't want to um, show weakness or vulnerability They want to, they want you to know that you're, they're just going to do their job. And they, they often perceive that, well, if I go into coach's office, then they're thinking that, uh, something's wrong with me or I'm complaining and I just want them, I don't want them to worry about me. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times it comes from a place of, um, I don't want to say insecurity, but maybe that's the right word of feeling insecure about their position and not wanting to overburden the head coach. The head coach has a lot going on. I know they have a lot going on. They have a lot of decisions. I don't want to bother them and sound like I'm complaining. And and a lot of times it's not even about playing time. They might have a question about you know what they want to do and how they want to do it. And so a lot of times that's where the assistant coaches, as you know, play a massive role because they can have a conversation with the assistant coach without feeling like, they are being a burden, mm-hmm. and so I think as a head coach, if there's a way to unburden the burden mm-hmm. of, we're gonna have conversations. Sometimes it's gonna be about your role. Sometimes it's gonna be about relationships. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's gonna be about school, social, uh, family challenges. I think when head coaches can get into that space and make it a part of the the routine, the the athlete doesn't even realize that they're going to the head coach. It's just no, that's we have this open dialogue. Yes. I had uh, Coach Calipari, I-, I chatted with him one time, and uh, I was out at, in Lexington, Kentucky, and he's worked with a sports psychologist named Bob Rotella, whose books are all behind me He's a golf expert. And Dr. Bob goes and, and visited, visits Kentucky like once a year, he meets with all the players, then he meets with uh, Coach Cal, and they just sort of have a conversation. And I asked uh, Bob Rotella, like, well, where does that line of confidentiality work when you meet with the players and then you meet with the head coach. And he goes, Cal knows everything about his guys. He's like, I'm not telling Cal something that he doesn't know about his guys because he's connected to them and he's mm-hmm. always having dialogue with them. So it's not even about that. It's about how do we figure out how to unlock their potential as players. And so having a conversation individually, I might hear something or see something that Cal might not have seen and I'm just giving it a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that's helpful for you as you're yeah. thinking about how, how do you make a culture where the players feel like they can consistently come to you on a regular basis, and not that you are constantly having to outreach to them. I think it, it's a massive challenge, and I, I hear it all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and I would love to for them to see me more as an assistant and not as a head coach. And feel that comfort level of it's not like I've kicked people off the team or anything like that. You know, it's just it's just that. I don't know, maybe it is the burden thing. And I would love to figure out how to unburden the burden that they feel because I, it, it almost makes me feel that there's pressure when I have this conversation. And I try to not always make it about basketball because I know that's stressful sometimes when you're hearing it from, from the boss, um, but try to talk to them about other things. And uh, one of our assistants just had a baby over the weekend. And so I think that's gonna help just a little bit to have uh, a little kid come to practice and, you know, he's crying and doing his thing. And I just think that lightens the mood a little bit. And I think we all could use that from time to time.
1: I think about Penn State women's volleyball, the okay. coach there, he used to do like one minute meetings, mm-hmm. I think weekly with his players. Okay. And so no matter what they would do a minute, I call them drive-through meetings. Okay. So ever since I've talked to coaches about this, it's like, you know, just have drive-through meetings. One minute, it might be you, the head coach, are talking a lot. It might be you don't talk at all and you just listen, listen. But creating that space consistently to just drive through, it's almost like you drive through, you get your chicken nuggets and fries (laughs) and then you're on your way, right? right? Like that's it. You're not sitting down for a full course meal. But I agree with you because players crave the attention or the touching from the head coach. Yep. And no matter how great your assistant coaches are, they always need to know exactly where the head coach is because at the end of the day, during the game, they're seeing you stand up and I've sat behind your bench. You're mm-hmm. standing mm-hmm. in high heels and, and, you know, pacing that sideline pretty good. Your assistant coaches are still involved. They're vocal. I've, mm-hmm. I, once again, I sat behind your bench. But at the end of the day, you're the one that's saying, you know, you go in. Mm-hmm. You come out, it, you know, there is a control factor that the head coach does. Mm-hmm. And doesn't mean his assistant coach can't say, hey, why don't we go to this person or that person? Yeah. They can, but there is a power dynamic and a control dynamic there that's that's really real.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I When you we were talking, I was thinking about being an assistant for Brian at Marist and how I would try to get the players to see him differently. Because no one wanted to go to his office and talk to him. And Brian was very limited in the things that he was capable of talking to. He's in his 60s now, right? He's a basketball coach. (laughs) Yeah. So he talks about golf. He talks about card collecting. He talks about food. um, You know, the the general things that he does on a day-to-day basis. And basketball, obviously. But I tried to let them see, like, he's just a marshmallow. Like, he's really a nice person. And it's funny because two of my assistants played for him and now as coaches they see him completely differently than they did as players and they really have have grown to love him that way and it's it's i just wish i could have broken through to them while they played but it's different
1: there's an amazing i was just going to say you hear coach you hear players that played for a tough coach mm-hmm. and then they come back years later and they say thank you like i needed that yes. but they don't realize it when they're in it mm-hmm. and that is a massive question which is how do you get them to appreciate it while they're in it because if you can get them to be grateful while they're in it, the sky's the limit for what you can achieve. I think when you have a grateful team and you're not focused on playing time or stats and all the other things that can derail a culture, when you have that attitude of gratitude, it can really be massive. Mm -hmm. And that is a massive question is how do you have your head coach have the relationships that an assistant coach would have uh, in that same vein and not wait until they graduate to have an appreciation for that relationship. And I have seen coaches do it and it's amazing when they, when they can pull that off. And I think you're not giving yourself enough credit because I think, especially this last group that that mm-hmm. graduated with you, um, the amount of clarity that they had their senior year mm-hmm. was different than the seniors that graduated the year before that won a championship. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this, uh, the, so a little bit, background on on coaches experience at American University so uh, two years ago they won the Patriot League and went to the NCAA tournament and played a UCLA team that had professionals and just amazing basketball players and and battled for uh, three quarters and then UCLA sort of pulled away in, in the fourth and I watched it and it was it was really fun to watch and Uh, It's funny, I was watching with my son, and my son, now when we watch basketball games, he'll say, Daddy, do you work with those players? And it's like nonstop. Um, But, uh, so the team that graduated two years ago had three seniors, we were talking about them before we turned on the mics, and they were the intangibles, the leadership, the toughness, the underdog chip on the shoulder type stuff was real with them. And they were going to do whatever it took to win. And then they had a junior class that was maybe, that was definitely more talented. Um, and there were three juniors, how many juniors, three Three juniors. So you had this senior and junior laden team that was primed to do great things. And they did, and they, they made it. Um, but my point in saying all that was that senior class that was had the intangibles and leadership, it took you a while to get them to that point where they had trust. And, yeah. and I know this because I talked to them throughout their years when they were younger and they were sophomores. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was a, a massive process. But your seniors this year, where you went to the Patriot League championships and just barely didn't make it to the finals and uh, had an amazing run as well, those kids who didn't necessarily have those uh, intangibles of the class before it they were more bought in or more believed in it at a younger age it seemed like from my Agree. perspective so it's a fascinating dynamic and I look at your culture now because of what's happened before you see these kids that are freshmen and sophomores now who I feel like you have built those relationships and the mm-hmm. trust that now you're able to be honest and direct with them so I mm-hmm. feel like you you have believed in them and you believe in the culture as a coach and then they feel that cause they've heard it down the road, but it didn't happen overnight. Can you just, uh, um, talk about that in those dynamics as far as building the system, the culture? I know those words get overused a lot, but talk about how, how you came about. Well, I would that. say,
0: uh, this year's group of seniors, um, I mean, they've been through everything. They've been through their freshman year, uh, eight wins. So they were part of what the previous seniors had been through, right? So, eight wins, fifteen wins, championship, almost championship, postseason, NIT. Um, but they they also had a ton of playing time since they they stepped foot on campus. So I think they really understood. What we were trying to accomplish and how we wanted to run our offense, how we play our defense, and it was our second recruiting class, real recruiting class. So, you, I think you always get a little bit better with every class because you're a little bit further ahead. So the 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 uh, Maria and Emily's class two years ago uh, was our first class. We got hired in August and we had to sign them in in November. So literally, we're just picking for what's left out there based on you know who didn't sign or who didn't verbally commit at that point. So it was harder to find the group of players that fit exactly what you wanted. So we kind of went for personality. We kind of went for the, the grittiness and those types of intangibles that they brought. And then Cecily's class is is more of, okay, so these three are system-fitting players. Um, I think you could just see by the accomplishments that that class has been able to, to – uh, to do this year. I mean, I think Cecily just being the only player in school history to have, what, 1,000 points, 500 rebounds, 100 blocks, and 100 threes. I think that class in general all had 100 made threes in their career. So you knew, and we need that as a part of our offense. We need you to be able to shoot the ball. Um, But, you know, it wasn't always gravy for them. It wasn't always easy. I mean, I think that group went through a lot, but they did, for whatever reason, we could build stronger relationships with them. I don't know if they just opened up more. I felt like the previous class was really – academically driven and basketball was their sidekick. And here with this class, it was basketball came first and academics was a close second, but it wasn't ahead of what their basketball career was. So I think we, we as a staff myself, I can identify with that better. So we had better conversations, deeper conversations, things that we could talk about the tournament. We could talk about different things. You could talk about the WNBA. They know who I'm talking about, where the class before didn't know who half those players were. So it's hard to connect with people like that. So you try to find different ways to connect with them, maybe outside of, of the game. Um, and then now this this year's freshman class is a load of fun. Like That's a group that I hope they don't change. So they've come in as freshmen. All of them have no problem talking to me. They come up to me directly. They can uh, – Laugh and joke around with me, but sometimes, as they get older, that changes, and i'm trying to hope I'm hoping and trying to get them to not change through their course of of time here
1: It's interesting you talked about the first class you had we we went for the character we went for grittiness, mm-hmm. uh, maybe selflessness, whatever those those traits are and then this next class, you were able to find the skill, and it sounds like now. The, what you're looking for is a combination of both. Yes. And so you're looking at the human side and the skill. Mm-hmm. And there's three things we can train we can train mindset, mm-hmm. um, but character, personality, by the time they're 18, 19, there's some argument as to how much of that is set and how much isn't. It's a debate. Um, but you can train mindset, you can train the physical. So what kind of fitness they're in, and you can train skill. But what you're looking for, it sounds like, is hey, we really want to find skilled people that meet the mindset that we want and the skills that we want. And so now you're fi- looking for both of those. But let's be honest about it you're in the Patriot League. And so, you know, UCLA <laughs> is looking for highly skilled, yes. gritty kids too, right? Um, you know, there are, everybody wants the, the character and the player, that's the dream. How do you go about finding that, in knowing that um, you don't have the glitz and glam of a high major, uh, you just don't? So how how do you go about finding that?
0: It's really difficult, I think. Um, I I think about Jade Edwards in particular when you talk, because I think she's an amazing athlete for our level. Um, and I do think she's a higher level athlete and player, uh, how we found, like, I think about how we came about watching her and and Nikki sent me to this rinky dink tournament, AAU tournament in July that was like, I don't know, maybe 50 teams. And I was going to watch the other team.
1: And Nikki's her assistant coach for those that don't know.
0: Sorry. Um, and Jade's team happened to be playing against this other team, this Fairfax stars team that I was watching. And I'm like, who is that kid? Like she kept doing little things. I'm like, wow. You know, and I don't even think I realized that what how good of an athlete she was until she she stepped foot on campus but it i think it's it's a you do if you try to recruit off the the EYBL teams the big time you know funded aau teams you're watching players that don't play that are on the team are good enough to be on the team but they might get a couple minutes here and there and so you don't ever really get good evaluations so you we end up watching teams that aren't as good that are in the, the uh, weaker brackets when we go to these AAU tournaments, and what ends up happening is you can find a gem in those in those situations, but the problem then becomes when they get to you as freshmen, they're they're always. They always have the ball in their hands. They're number
1: one player on their team.
0: Yes. They're the only player on their team. They're not playing against good competition. So then you're almost sacrificing two years for them to understand in college what it takes to play at that level. But yet you know they have the skill. So it's it's a a give and take. Um, And a lot of people are satisfied with just working hard. And to me, you have to have that, but it can't be the only thing.
1: It's fascinating, but there's also a dynamic that you mentioned earlier, which is you love being the underdog. Mm-hmm. And so that kid that's playing on that AAU team probably had a desire to play with those top, top AAU teams mm-hmm. that get the notoriety or what yes. have you. Um, so there might be an element of them that also sees themselves as an underdog. And maybe that's where the fit uh, for your program at NAU starts, yeah. to, starts to align.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: All right. I want to go back to your story a little bit. So you win this championship your junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, When did you start getting recruited for college ball?
0: I actually signed late. So in the spring of of my senior year and I was recruited, but I I was one of those people that was kind of shy growing up, really wasn't introverted. Yes. Very much introverted still. Yes. I still consider myself an introvert for the most part. Um, But yeah. So I couldn't make up my mind. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I was being recruited by some local schools. Um, Towson kind of came along um, at the right time. I felt after I had visited campus and got to know the coaches and the team that it was a good fit for me. It wasn't too far away from home, uh, which is kind of what I was looking for, I think. Um, I looked at Siena. I looked at Mount St. Mary's, looked at some other schools. I mean, I wasn't the greatest player out there, but I knew I could play at that level. And so Towson just seemed to be the right fit for me. Um, So I signed late. Yeah, I was like, Spring, weird. That doesn't happen that often now.
1: And what was it like at Towson?
0: Uh, just as, pl- as a player, you mean? Sure. Well, I mean, I I came in not really getting it. I could honestly say I don't think I prepared myself well my first year, two years. I had to make a decision after my my sophomore year that listen, you're either gonna figure this out and you're gonna get yourself ready, meaning develop my skills, make sure that I'm in shape, make sure that I'm lifting, do all the little things because it really it was a it was a requirement. But it was it's not like it is today where you go to summer school and you get your work in and you can work out with the coaches. That wasn't a thing when I played, so it was all self motivated type of, of things that you had to worry about. So. I had to make a decision. My first two years were rough. um, Didn't play a whole lot. Um, I remember sitting on the bench as a junior in the first like three or four games. I I was coming off the bench at that point. I was getting playing time. And I said to myself, what are you going to do to start? How are you going to differentiate yourself? Because I always felt like I understood the game. It was just putting it into action. And I needed my coach to to give me some chances because I was somewhat of a risky Basketball player. I, I like to pass the ball. I like to shoot the ball. And so I would t- take those risky opportunities. But if it, it's a turnover, then you're coming out and all that stuff. So um, I think something changed in uh, going into my junior year. You probably don't know this, but my brother's in a serious car accident when I was a junior in college. Your so, younger brother? Or was my it? younger brother. Okay. Yeah. So my mind frame changed to what was important in life, I guess. And I think – I don't, I don't know if I'm right about this, but I think my college coach felt bad for me a little bit. And it was terrible. It was a terrible time. It happened in the fall. So it was like September of my junior year when it happened. And <clears throat> I remember going into her office crying about the situation and, you know, not knowing if he was going to live and all that stuff. Uh, it's, I'm still emotional about it now. But um, but she understood. She took me out of of practice and let me just do my thing. Uh Yeah. And I needed that. I needed that time to spend with him. But he's fine now. Like he's I shouldn't say fine. I mean, he's still he's still disabled. And and all that. And he was going to play in college and stuff. So that was hard for me. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was what I learned from the experience is that you I still remained positive through the entire thing. Um, And felt like he he was going to make it because it's it was it was touch and go for a very long period of time, and um, what's funny about it is I remember watching talking about my mother and the type type of directness that she has. I remember being in the emergency room at Shock Trauma down in Baltimore, and one of the nurses said about Ryan after the first month he was in a coma for a couple of months, and they had to monitor like his head pressure in his head because they weren't sure if it was just gonna explode I guess but um one of the nurses said he's just gonna be a vegetable in front of him like as she was taking care of him and that was my mother just turned and she went right at that nurse and said don't you ever say that in front of my son again or I'm gonna have you removed and she had the, re- the nurse removed off of him and she never worked with Ryan ever again so like she she has that ability to like stand up for herself stand up for her kids um and that's like a moment I'll never forget.
1: And it's the combination of believing. So she has this faith. Does she have a religious framework? Is there any?
0: I think she used to. Yeah. I'm not sure so much anymore.
1: Okay. So, But she has this belief in the people that she cares about. And then also this directness. And it, it showed there, like, I believe he's going to be better. Yes. We have to be positive. Yes. And, and, and also being direct enough to be strong enough to say that what needs to be said yes in that moment yes what changed for you after that this is, it sounds like a transformative experience it
0: was I uh, mean obviously for me as a junior in college not a lot of people have to grow up that fast like you still want to enjoy it like junior senior year like you're out enjoying college and being being just being there and having your friends and going out and all that stuff and that just stopped for me um, as a junior so throughout that year I mean he was in rehab for many many years um, but like I would travel we'd come home from a game and he was in Delaware I think at that rehab place there and so we would come back coach would drop me off literally at the at the rehab center and I would st- they would drop me off with my bags and stuff and my parents would be there and then they would drive me back to campus like I just didn't partake as being a college student athlete anymore i mean i went to class obviously and i think my parents were worried about my grades and my grades ended up being fine i think what it taught me was how to compartmentalize things like to push like when i played i focused on basketball didn't focus on ryan when i left whether it was a game or after practice or after school, I would drive up to Delaware and go spend time with him. It was just, you had to multitask. You had to uh, manage your time because you had to study at this time. You had to go to practice at this time. You had to go visit Ryan at this time. You know, all that stuff was happening. And, you know, I watched my my friends just enjoy the rest of college, and I just couldn't after that because I was always doing something or going somewhere.
1: And how's Ryan now?
0: He's doing He's at all our games. Um he, he what's great about him is his personality never changed. It's just his speech his his ability to move. I mean, he's, he had a brainstem injury, so <clears throat> he's hemiplegic. So half of his body is partially paralyzed. Um, he has short term memory loss and things like that, but he still loves basketball. He still loves Duke. He loves coming to all our games. Um, and he's still involved in sports somehow, some way he was coaching a little bit for Middletown, um, I think the ninth grade team, the boys team, he was helping out there. He's just limited as to what he's capable of doing. But um, but I, there's part of me that really wishes that I could have seen him play in college, that he was headed in that. This happened when he was a junior in high school and I was a junior in college. So I never got a chance to see him move on in his his athletic career, which I really would have liked to see. Um, but I, if you've been to our games, you've seen him. So big guy, 6'5", walking in with a cane. Cheering. Yeah, all the time. Yeah.
1: And your family too. I mean, they have such a presence when they come in to the arena because I usually like to sit behind your bench so I can watch the interactions and they come, you know, they usually walk by me and then sit behind like the Mm -hmm. scorer's table a couple rows up. Um, So it's, it's a, it's not just him when, when he comes walking in, it's it's your whole clan.
0: He's extroverted. I'm introverted.
1: (laughs) He's, it looks like he's, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies when he comes walking in. Um. And so for you, you, you you become more serious as a person and then basketball became more serious for you as well.
0: Yes. I think everything became more serious for me and I don't think I ever really let myself go at times. I think that's something I could always improve on is that,
1: was that beforehand or after or I think I was
0: always a little bit like that, but I think it just became a little more extreme for me and that. It is about business and getting to the next place and focusing on whatever it is that I'm trying to focus on at the time, trying to win career aspirations, things like that. Um, and I think I need to allow myself to, I do feel satisfied, but I think just enjoy things more. I'm I, I'm a little too serious, I guess.
1: What drives you as a coach?
0: Uh, wanting to make players better, um, feeling like they they got through their four years that they got each year got a little bit better, um, that they feel and they want to come back. Like I want them to want to come back and hang with us or, you know, come to alumni day or bring their kids back and just make it more of that family, a place that they can just breathe and get away from everything else that's crazy in their lives. Because sometimes you need that. It doesn't matter where you are, where you're living or where you are, what point in your life you're at. Um, But just feeling like you always have a home here.
1: And when did coaching come into the picture for you?
0: Not until after I graduated college and I didn't even know I wanted to coach. That was not something I had thought about.
1: What had you thought about?
0: Um, well, because of Ryan's accident, I think I thought a lot about special education and learning disabilities Was or guidance counseling was something I was thinking about at the time. I was a psychology major, knowing that I couldn't really do anything with that. I had to go to grad school, get a master's. Um, so my... My college coach said, "Well, hey, you could be like part time for a little bit, figure it out." So I did that, which I'm not sure is a great idea. Coaching the people you just played with, I think that's really difficult. But I did it for a year, and then Jeff Thatcher, American, was uh, friends with my college coach, and he had a a GA spot open. So that's kind of how I got into coaching.
1: And did you like it right away? Were you? Did so you knew like right away that this is what I should be doing?
0: Yes, it was easy. For me, And I always wanted to be involved in sports somehow. I felt like that was my calling. This is what I, in some capacity, that this is what I was going to do. Um, trying to figure things out, you know, talking to recruits, building relationships was something I felt like I was pretty good at. And so that's just, it just made the most sense.
1: What was it like to coach the players that you had just been in the
0: locker room with? That was tough. I, I remember... And it's a long time ago, Brian. So jogging my memory here. But I remember one day in practice yelling, not yelling, but speaking to the point guard who was my point guard when I played. And she just turned at me and was like, I don't have to take this from you. And I, I was like taken back by that because I'm like, but I'm your, I'm your coach now. And it just didn't click for her. It didn't make a difference. And we were pretty good friends when we played. And it kind of made me step back from the situation and maybe say a little bit less and maybe say more to the staff and less to the players because I knew I was crossing some boundaries, I guess, that I didn't realize were there. Um, And then it was easier when I went from Towson to AU because then I didn't know any of those girls and they could see me as a a different person than, than Towson.
1: And as a coach now, what do you do to make sure that you're showing up as your best?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I think it's more of, you know, prepare, do you mean for practices, games?
1: Let's start with practice and then maybe we'll talk about games too.
0: My favorite time of year is the practice season. I, I love practice season. And I'm sure my players, if they heard me say that, would think I'm crazy.
1: Every, uh, not every, most coaches that I talk to, uh, the energy that they have for practice, when I'm there sometimes, I'm like, wow, how do they have this? Love for the attention to detail. Yeah. it, it's an, It's hard to explain to people unless they've been in a gym in, let's just call it August or September or a time where the games aren't happening yet. And you watch these coaches and how much they love that is amazing. So I'd love to hear why. Like why, why do you, why do you love that?
0: I think it's, partly due to the detail that you can spend more time on details I feel like when and we're very detailed as a staff but when you get into games you do you do your part as far as the details concerned but you can't do it over and over and over again right I mean you only have a couple days to get ready for your opponent I do think it's the lack of pressure in some way that you don't have to worry about a game coming around the corner that <laughs> like you could just focus on that I I going into this year, I kind of want to change how we do practice thinking about it, because I've had a staff that's been there. This is our seventh season together. I kind of want them to speak a little bit more. And they speak a lot. But I almost want to stand up in the stands and watch from above and not be on the court as much because I feel like I can see different things when I'm quiet. I have this when I'm on the court next to them, I feel like I have to be talking for them half the time. And I just want to take a step away and see what they'll be able to do because we're going to be super young. Um, and they have to learn how to communicate with each other and not have us do it for them. So there's, I'm, I am going to change a little bit what we do this year. But I think it's the, the detail. I think it's fun to watch people improve because you see in September, you see what they're capable of, then you see them starting to get it. And I think that is... Uh, intoxicating in some way that you're like oh they're getting it they're grasping it this is going to be great and then what you don't realize is you're playing yourself every day in practice so you're going to encounter so many different things throughout the season that I think it's it's getting them to understand that this is not always how it's going to be it's not they're not always going to play defense this way they're not always going to defend ball screens that way you have to be able to handle different situations and i think being able to throw at them scrimmages and then half court so you can really break things down and then you know i don't know doing a bunch of different drills i'm not a big drill person i think they're necessary for certain things but i think more that you can play 5 on 5 the quicker they're going to learn how to play with each other i mean the they you're never going to play five on four or three on three in a game. So it's good for a certain amount of time to teach certain concepts. But I like the idea of the progression. I like the idea of whole part whole. I like the idea of the detail and the lack of pressure with games. And, you know, scrimmages are fun because we don't have to prepare for a scrimmage. You know, you get this two scrimmages you're allowed to take and we never give them a scouting report. We just let them play. And I think what it shows them is they're so much better with a scout than they are when we just roll the ball out and say, let's see what we can do against against Mount St. Mary's or whoever it is that we're playing.
1: And then on game day, what you have any routines or habits that you do to make sure that you're where you need to be when you get to the sideline?
0: I do think uh, walkthrough is a big telltale sign for me as to how much they understand. There are times this year that I would watch us do walkthrough and I've played I've worked for different people that treat walkthrough as a practice and walkthrough is a walkthrough. And what I've I've learned is they, they, they expend so much energy in games that I really wanna make the day of a walkthrough and not an actual like, let's go at it to make sure you know. But we'll walk through their sets, let's say. And if I see somebody not hedging correctly, they don't understand what we do. They don't understand the game plan. If I see that they're going under a ball screen versus over, then it tells me who's prepared. And for me, that prepares me as a coach to know, okay, she really gets it. She's doing all the little things correctly. I feel good about putting her in the game when the time comes. So it's more of like, it's like a quiz almost. It's like the exam before the exam.
1: There's something interesting. You've now mentioned defense a lot in the last yes. couple of minutes. <laughs> and it's not lost on me that in the beginning of our conversation, you talked about how you maybe weren't into defense. Um, and so talk about where you've come about your philosophy when it comes to basketball and how that's changed as a coach compared to as a player.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a player, it just wasn't my forte. I just, I also don't think that I became the player that maybe I could have in my four years. Part, I can blame myself for that, and I can also say the coaches had a little bit to do with that. But what I've learned in the championships that I've won is that you're going to come across a time where you can't shoot the ball. It's just not your day. And if you truly want to win that championship. I think about our our Navy game uh, two years ago, and we were terrible offensively because Navy was a really good defensive team. And they took a lot of things away and we had to be able to do the same. And so I learned that you have to be able to play both sides of the ball. And I see the value in it. I almost like defense sometimes better than offense because I think it's a little bit more black and white to some degree. I watch the NBA, and I'm like, I don't even know how those guys come up with defensive schemes because they're so good. You can't take everything away at that level. But at our level, you can take some things away and force them to take the shots that you want them to take. And to me, that strategy, that's fun. When no, they're you're take, lighting up sh- right now. Yeah, like when they take shots, they know they shouldn't be taking, but they take anyway. It's like a win, whether it goes in or not. Sometimes I'll just say, "Great defense, better offense," because that happens—that they throw something in. But I think when you see somebody get frazzled, it's—it's it's a win. It's a win for your team. It—it it, it creates momentum, and then you know, one steal turns into two steals, turns into whatever, bad shot, long rebound, transition basket, like all those types of things is what you thrive on, and then. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong. I love the offensive side. I love what we do because I think it's unique and different than a lot of coaches teach. But yeah, just love the defensive side
1: when you think about your legacy as a coach, what do you want it to be? I
0: really want I want my players or my staff to become head coaches. I want that basketball tree. That coaching tree. Why?
1: Why is that important to you? Because I
0: think it makes the game better. I think, I'm not saying what I do makes the game better, but in general, I think the more people that understand what I've learned, who I've learned from, what they've brought, and how to teach players how to play the game and not just tell them to go from point A to point B, I think is fun. But you have to be willing to not be a control freak. especially. I'm a control freak on the defensive end, but not so much on the offensive end.
1: It's interesting because I think of defense as being actually more controllable. You uh, you don't need to make shots. You can decide what kind of defense you want to play. Like you said, how you want to play it, mm-hmm. which is so backwards because I think most people think that offense is dictating to defense. Mm-hmm. But if you can find a way to make defense dictate to offense, um, mm-hmm. you're in a, a more position of control. And I I've always said I think coaches like defense because they can control it more. They, it's about a lot about effort and mm-hmm. execution, and um, it's just a fascinating dynamic because I think most fans watch and they watch offense. Um, I know when I watch basketball, I'm often watching offense, mm-hmm. and when I've been around coaches, I'll notice they notice things on defense that I'm not really paying attention to as a fan. Yep. And I think it's the reason why is because defense, I think they have more ownership over how they show up, mm-hmm. whereas offense surprisingly, it's harder to have ownership over exactly what you're doing and how you want to do it.
0: Yeah, there's no question.
1: It's fascinating. Okay, I want to give you a megaphone to promote American University to promote anything else that you are passionate about, and that you uh, really feels like deserves a megaphone that we can Tell people about so take that where you want to take it. But yeah. uh, where can people learn about women's basketball at AU and anything else that you are also passionate about as well?
0: Well, I, you know when I think about AU and what they've, I mean, they've given me my first shot at, co- at as being a head coach. And really, I believe in second chances because I, in, I think it was two thousand seven. They they brought me down for an interview, offered me the job, and I said no. And I thought, why did you say no? I didn't feel ready at the time. We also had just gone to the Sweet Sixteen. So it's hard to leave that type of success, even knowing that that's when you get your opportunity. I just felt like, wow, like this is so amazing what we're being able to do here at Maris, and I want to be a part of it. I don't want to leave yet. I'm not ready. Probably looking back, I probably was ready. Um, just didn't, just didn't want to do it at the time. I don't know. So. Yeah, so then I thought, well, I'll probably never get that opportunity again. Um, and then it came around again. And I said to myself, all right, well, if I don't take it now, I'm never going to take it. So, And it was it was the timing was right. I was ready to go. Um, you know, I felt comfortable because the administration, uh, Athena Argyropoulos, is somebody I'd known for years. Um, I didn't know Dr. Walker that well, but after having several conversations with him about the job, I felt like he was behind me. I felt like he was behind women's basketball in general. And he felt whatever volleyball has been able to accomplish at the school, that women's basketball shouldn't be far behind. And I liked hearing that. I liked hearing that they want to have the success, that they're willing to back us with what we need to be successful. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons I chose to come here. And obviously, my family and having that support system right here was big for me to be able to, it's an easy choice for me uh, to come home. Uh, to coach. So, you know, we, we've we talked a lot about what our mantra is as a staff. And we have those three words with family, passion and excellence. And I think we live those three things every, each and every day um, as a staff, as a team, and sometimes some years are harder than others. Um, and I think you hear that family piece from every program, everybody wants it to be a family atmosphere. But I don't think we would have gotten Cecily to come here if she didn't feel that way on her visit. And, you know, we're still reaching out to the people that played for us, um, finding out what they're doing in their careers, asking them to come back, support us, support the next group. They want to be at those bars watching us in, in March Madness NCAA tournament time to see that first NCAA victory. Because I mean, honestly, that's what this team is striving for is it's not good enough anymore just to get there, that they wanted that first win. And I told the team when they do, I will get a tattoo. I don't know of what, but I told them that that will happen. So that gives them a little extra motivation. But it's just, you know, the, the passionate excellence piece is something that I feel like I live by every day that I don't go into a practice without giving them the passion and the energy that they need.
1: How do you do that? How do you make sure that you're passionate and excellent?
0: the positivity, it's the correction, it's, you know, talking about energy, giving them, um, you know, asking them questions, what, you know, just whatever that is, it's showing them like my staff is super, super engaged, and constantly on them. And we don't let, let anything go. And I think that's passion for the game for wanting to be better. And the excellence piece is just getting it right. You know, and it doesn't always mean Excellence doesn't always mean championships, but it's how you go about your business day in and day out, on the court, off the court. Are you a respectable human being in society? Are you giving back to the community? You know, what is it that you're doing to make uh, your legacy known? What is it that you want your legacy to be? And I think that's the excellence piece that I'm looking for in people. And then the passion to want to play the game, to want to be better, like we talked about earlier, to not settle and not become complacent. I don't want to be surrounded by complacency. And I think they know that about me. I'm always trying to get myself to, to go to different things, do different things to be better. And they have to do the same.
1: You guys are on Twitter as a program. What's your Twitter handle? Do you know? <laughs> I'll find it out. It's, uh, it, yeah, I think it's probably like AU women's I think basketball.
0: At, at Coach Meg Jebia.
1: And are you at, are you on Twitter as well? Yes,
0: I'm on Twitter as well. So I, give
1: us your Twitter handle. <laughs> Is it at Coach It's Meg? at Coach Meg Jebia. All right. So now we got your Twitter. <laughs> You guys can also follow the team online. Uh, Anything else that you wanna promote, give a megaphone to?
0: I don't, I think I've I've covered it.
1: Awesome, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, uh, Instagram intentional underscore performers. Uh, Coach, been great to get to know you over the years. Love working with you. We were talking before we fired up the mics. You get great kids. And it's, when I go to have conversations with your team, honestly, most of the time, I think if I just ask some questions, they can take it from there, and and I get to learn from them, and get to learn from your staff as well, and it's it's super fun. One of the things they get at American is they get these kids, um, who are really smart and really driven, and uh, you know, especially you're talking about this class coming in, you can see they also are driven to be really great basketball players, and so it's been really fun working with your program. It doesn't hurt that they're not that they're that they're like really good at basketball. <laughs> that always helps. Uh, that they know how to shoot the heck out of the ball you should watch her team play I mean they usually have five guys on the floor that can stroke it and uh, Cecily who coach has talked about is a center but I mean she gets in a rhythm from outside and she had that happen a couple times this year and she just you know can put up a lot of points very very quickly so uh, I love watching a team play the system the style but Even more than that, the enthusiasm, the character, the courage, the fearlessness, the freedom that they play with Mm -hmm. is inspiring. So I love getting to watch them when I watch them, but I also love just getting into a a room with them and having conversations about mindset. And uh, it's just been an awesome, awesome experience. So I want to thank you for everything you do and everything you continue to do to build a really great program and there's a lot to be proud of and i'm sure the legacy piece will will start to show up as you continue to age and i look forward to seeing you when you're 86 years old and and still coaching and seeing your coaching tree uh, do all kinds of wonderful things in this world thanks
0: brian for working with our team because I, i don't think we could have accomplished some of the things that we have without your help so thank you for that thanks thanks for coming on yep
1: thank you for listening to intentional performers with brian levinson Here is this week's episode jam.
0: Excellence doesn't always mean championships, but it's how you go about your business day in and day out, on the court, off the court. Are you a respectable human being in society? Are you giving back to the community? You know, what is it that you're doing to make... uh, your legacy know? What is it that you want your legacy to be? And I think that's the excellence piece that I'm looking for in people. And then the passion to want to play the game, to want to be better, like we talked about earlier, to not settle and not become complacent. I don't want to be surrounded by complacency.